Good morning. My name's Adam, one of the pastors here at Bethany. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on this beautiful sunny morning. Uh, spring is here, right? This week, I'm told, is the first day of spring. Uh, so I'm cracked out the short sleeve purple shirt, trying to will that thing here and everything I can. I mean, we're, we're looking forward to that spring. Uh, we're in a series uh, right now uh, titled, Well Said. We're talking about the words that we speak. The 6,000 to 8,000 words that come off of your tongue in a day. And you get this, you know this, because you've received this. Words can either bring unbelievable pain or great healing. And we've been talking about, the Bible talks a lot about what we do with this little thing called the tongue. And so let's just, we've been taking some time out. This week and next week is it. If you have one of these, a journal, it's on page 67 this morning. You can take notes. And then the reading plan is there. If you don't have the journal, hopefully you're continuing to join us in that reading plan um, that will carry you through uh, this week uh, through Psalm 15. You want to turn with me there, uh, Psalm chapter 15. Psalm 15 is going to land a little before the middle of your Bible, roughly. It's in, you kind of see it laid out there if you're new to the Bible. It lands uh, around books of, you'll see Esther, Job, after you'll see Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Psalm is a, it's a big book. There's a lot of it. And what it is, Psalms is basically songs. Uh, what they are is they're a compilation of poetry or lyrics to music is basically what the kind of the simplest way to say it. Uh, they're a collection of uh, songs that would, when people would get together in the nation of Israel in a morning like this to worship God, to do church, so to speak, these, this is what they sung. So everything you read in the songs is kind of their hymnal. Uh, matter of fact, some churches still to this day will only do music out of what they call the Psalter Psalms. So again, that's kind of what this is. And we're going to look at Psalm 15. I want to tell a story where Psalm 15, uh, this story really is Psalm 15 took a very personal place in my life uh, and very powerful. And every time I think about this Psalm or read it, this story immediately comes to my mind. It happens when I was single. I was in school in upstate New York. I was finishing out my, it was a two year school or it's actually one year school. I stayed for a second year. I was finishing out that second year. I was coming into the spring. I had to finish out a little bit more school uh, in the fall yet. And then I was going to be done. And the the school approached me and said, Hey, Adam, would you join our staff, our Dean's staff? Now I thought about it, kicked it around. The real kicker was that I had to commit to a full year contract that year kind of starting after at the end of my schooling. And so basically what they were looking for me to do is right then and there sign a contract that committed me to another year and a half of my life being there at that school. Now, the thing that was hard for me is at the time I was single, but I was dating this beautiful girl named Tanya Brom was her name. And she um, was living at a distance from me. She was living here in Reading, Pennsylvania. And I was up in upstate New York, four to 500 miles away. And so I'm thinking, I don't know what's going to happen with that relationship. If we get engaged, what might that do to this job? And could, I mean, does she really want to, do we want to move here to New York? And um, we just sort of wrestle with that. I prayed. I saw a lot of counsel. Tanya and I talked about it best we could, not knowing our future, if we would even end up married, uh, engaged. And I said, okay, I'll do it. I felt God leading me. So I said, I'll sign on the line. I'll, I'm coming. The summer comes and goes at the end of the summer, Tanya and I decide to get engaged. Woohoo. Right. Yay. So we're engaged. And now I begin to realize the reality of my, I was making in that contract, $75 a week. You're like, wow, that's big money. Way to go. Right, so $75 a week, and I begin to realize what a wedding cost. I mean, this is 15, 16 years ago now. I'm thinking, wow, these things aren't cheap. 
We weren't getting help from um, her side of the family, a lot of help. We weren't getting help really from my, a little bit of help from my side of the family. So basically this financial pressure was landing on our shoulders. And I'm thinking $75 a week. Tanya was working at a bagel shop in, in Reading, Pennsylvania, a little more than minimum wage. And we're thinking, wow, what are we going to do? Um, so begin to wrestle through this. I complete my semester, my, the time there in the fall. I go home on winter break because I'm on staff now at the school. I kind of get the same break schedules the students get. I go home, and on my, I'm getting ready to come back from Christmas break. Just not really wanting to come back, very honestly. I'm realizing I'm going to leave this beautiful girl here in Pennsylvania, and I'm going back up there, and we're so close to marriage, and I'm like, I want to get there. And I head back up. Right before I go, I make a phone call up to the school. I said, hey, I'm coming back up, covering some final details. And I said, by the way, is my apartment complete? You see, when I left school, they had told me they'd have me put all my stuff in storage and they were going to open up a new apartment for me, kind of renovate an area. Yeah, it's done. It's done. It's all done. I get there, get my key to the apartment, walk over, unlock the door, swing the door open. And what I saw was anything but done. There was unfinished drywall and plaster. There were lights not in their place. The carpet was pulled up. The bathroom was a mess. There was no furniture in it. I was furious. I'm like, you told me it was done. I don't want to be here to begin with. I'm just here because it's my obligation to fulfill my contract. I'm out of here. Right then and there, I kind of purposed in my heart that you violated your word. I can go out of my word now. We're done with this. Now, I had to go stay at a hotel that night because my place wasn't ready. So I'm in a hotel. And a friend of mine was in town, a friend that normally was, he lives in France, happened to be in town and he, we kind of put together, we were both there. So we get together and he listens to my story. I vomited all over him. You ever, you ever experienced that? Someone just all over you. I all over him. He took it. He listened. We talked about that last week, just listening. He listened really well and empathized. And he even shared a story where he kind of was on staff at this school in Argentina and similar stuff happened. And he's talking to me. And he says, Adam, Tonight, before you go to bed, read Psalm 15. I'm not telling you what decision to make. I'm not telling you have to stay here. I'm not telling you to go home. I'm not telling you, just read Psalm 15. And I think there you're going to find your answer to what to do. And here's in essence what he said to me then. I don't know if this is his exact quote, but these are the words that I remember him saying. Adam, this isn't about violation of their words, but the honoring of yours. And a person of integrity who's going to live a blessed life, honors the words that they speak, honors the things that they commit to. And so whatever you decide, whatever God leads you to do, keep in mind it's about honoring your words. Now, as I share that story, as I've shared it in other, I've never really shared it from a stage like this, but I've shared it with other people privately. And what I find interesting is, is how foreign that idea, I ultimately decided to stay. And how foreign that idea is to some of us. Because we live in a culture, I mean, written right in the founding documents of our nation is the pursuit of happiness. It's one of the things we live for. And in today's world, we have made the pursuit of happiness all about individual personal happiness. So I am living life so that I can be happy. And how dare you get in my way of being happy? We have rights. I'm entitled to things. And when you violate my rights, I can now go and sue you and take you to court. And all we live in a culture that's litigated and, and we live in a culture that's convenient I mean, if it works today, I'm going to do it. Well, I'm like, I can't commit out that far. I mean, you kidding me? Sign up for something that's two days away. I mean, plans, things might change in two days. So we, we, we live in a culture like that. We live in a culture where we justify, like what I was doing in my mind was, and again, I could have, you, 
yeah, you could argue with me that I could have had the right to leave. But we begin to justify, well, they wronged me. They wronged me. I'm out of here. Or they broke their word or, or another context, you know, well, I was tired. That's why I couldn't make it to the appointment. Sorry, I had to cancel that time with you, but I was tired or I forgot or I didn't plan well. Or, it's been a really busy week. You ever do that? You put plans on the calendar. You get around to time to do those plans and you realize, oh, my word, I'm so busy. Well, oh, yeah, look, we, I'm supposed to have lunch. I'll just back that off and you cancel it. We do this and we do it a lot without even thinking about it. Without even processing it. And what's interesting to me in this psalm is this concept comes up is those who are at peace with God stay true to their word, even when it hurts. Even when there's a cost and a price to be paid, they honor their word. What comes out of their mouth is what they do and what they're going to carry through on. If you look with me at the text, I'm going to kind of work through this. Then I'm going to do a little bit of interpretation on verse 1 because some of you are going to read verse 1 and then jump into verse 2 and think, no, wait a minute. There's something, something will probably jump out at you. I want to talk about that and then we'll really just talk practically about the rest verses 2 through 5. But it says this, who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord, who may enter your presence on your holy hill. So the, the psalmist David, he's a king of Israel. He's writing, you know, who can enter your, who can be in the presence of God? Now, he's going to answer his own question, and he states some things. And what's interesting to me, how many things he lists here? I mean, you can, some, I've heard, seen different commentators break down into seven things, eight things. I've seen some broken down into six things. But no matter what, I, I go with seven. There's seven character traits. Now, if you think, if you just go home for lunch this afternoon and sit down with your family and say, okay, um, what are the character traits? A person who's in the presence of God is going to be true of them. We might think, well, they're not going to have sex with people that aren't, they aren't married to, and they're not going to this, they're not going to that, and they're going to do this. What's interesting to me, out of all, this isn't an exhaustive list, but out of the things that immediately come to David's mind, four of the seven have to do with what comes off my tongue. Wow. <laughs> I'm having to think of other things I could put on this list other than what he has here, but here's what it says. So those who lead blameless lives and do what is right, speaking the truth, there's a tongue concept, from sincere hearts. Those who refuse to slander, others of some of your translations have the word gossip there. Those who refuse to slander or gossip others or harm their neighbors or speak evil of their friends. Again, tongue concepts. Verse four, those who despise persistent sinners and honor the faithful followers of the Lord and keep their promises even when it hurts. Again, something happened with the tongue. Verse five, those who do not charge interest on the money they lend and who refuse to accept bribes to testify against the innocent. Again, testifying against the innocent, something having to do with the tongue. Such people, here's the heart of this. We're going to wrap this morning up with this thought, but also hold on to it for now. Such people will stand firm forever. Some of your translations say you're, you will not be shaken. It's like, wow, that's the life I want. Now, as we get started with this, verse 1, you read it. Who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord? Who may enter your presence? And all of a sudden, you get this answer of all this behavioral stuff. It's almost as if you could read this thinking that I earned my relationship with God. I earned my way into heaven. I earned my way into God's presence. So, God, I want to be with you. So what do I need to do? Well, okay, I got to control my tongue. I got to be a blameless person, all this stuff. I want to talk about that a minute. I want to give a little interpretation, help you understand that it. it's really not what David is saying. And we'll, when I, I think we can use his life to illustrate that. The presence of God. 
The presence of God is an interesting thing. Psalm 27, verses 4 to 5. David, the same guy who writes here, says this. The one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfection and meditating in his temple. For he will conceal me there when troubles come. He will hide me in his sanctuary. He will place me out of reach on a high rock. David's heart yearns. The one thing he asked for, David was driven to be in the presence of God. This concept of the presence of God is an interesting thing. As you look at all across the context of scripture, the presence of God simply means the best way to say it is I'm at peace with God. Other times when you see, you see here in this one, you see protection and provision offered when you're in his presence. Other times you read about life and a blessed life and a full life linked with his presence. You see the hope of eternal life in heaven linked with his presence. But all of it just kind of sums up to when I am in the presence of God, I'm at peace with him. So heaven one day. And I've heard people, uh, Christian people say at times, I'm not sure I'm really going to like heaven. And I say, well, why not? I've even had this thought at times. Well, I'm just going to fly around in harps and sing to God all day long. And as I listen to that, I think one of the things we've not done well in the church is talk about heaven is what we really gain is heaven is the presence of God. And we aren't just going to sit in a room like this and sing to him all day. I really believe we're going to carry on life as normal. We're going to work jobs. We're going to cook food and have banquets and party. And it's going to, it's going to ha- it, life is going to go. But the difference between heaven and here is I have the presence of God with me. And in a way that I'm at peace with him, I'm able to sit in his presence unhindered with sin. The gap, the chasm between sin and a holy God is going to be completely and totally wiped out. And so David understands the presence of God. Now, how do you get there? How do you get the presence of God, that peace that we yearn to have with God? How do we get there? We want to do a quick survey of the Old and then the New Testament. If you're brand new to the Bible, I think this will be really helpful to you. Even if you're not new to the Bible, I think sometimes we, those of us who have been studying the Bible, forget this stuff. You have the Old Testament of the Bible, and the Old Testament is the part that comes before Jesus. So all the stuff that's written kind of leading up to Jesus is the Old Testament. Then you have 400 years of no one talking. That's, there's, there's, we don't really have anything there. And then you have Jesus born, and then you have the New Testament shows up. So the Old Testament, you have the New Testament. And some people approach these two sections of the Bible, and they say, well, the Old Testament is all about God being angry. This holy God is full of wrath, and he's, man, if you don't behave, he's going to zap you. That's how they view the Old Testament. Then you come to the New Testament, and they think, well, now we got Jesus, and it's full of love and compassion and mercy. And and we kind of like do this with these, but really isn't how the Bible presents itself. Matter of fact, there's a lot of verses in the Old Testament talk about a compassionate, gracious, loving God. And there's a lot of verses in the New Testament that talk about an angry, wrath-filled God. So they're one and the same. And they both teach the same thing on how to come into the presence of God. And they teach it that it's by faith. Both of them teach by faith. Now, again, if you're new to the Bible, let me kind of lay this one out. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament... It starts out with a creation scene. God has made. He made this entire world. Then he makes you and I. And he makes humans. And then humans sin. So now we've got this holy, magnificent, great God. And we've got people who are sinners. Still created in his image. And God says, I want a relationship with you. But there's this big gap called sin. It separates us. So God creates this system of sacrifice. Now the reason he does this, in my personal opinion, is because sin is ugly. Sin is destruction. Sin is death. Sin is separation. And I think what he's, God's doing is I want you to understand that sin requires blood. 
So what he creates is a system where I would bring a bull or a ram or a goat or a sheep. And I come into the, the temple, the presence, the God's presence was physically in the temple area in a, in, a, in a worship area. And I would come and I would bring this animal and I would bring the animal. In essence, I was confessing to God. I am a sinner. I'm full of sin. I'm going to pass in faith. I'm going to trust you. I'm passing my sin onto this animal. And the animal goes in with the priest and then the priest off. It's bloody. It's like this transfer it takes. Now people just think, well, they got saved. They came into the presence of God because they obeyed God and did all these things. No, no, no. What they were doing was they were coming in by faith and saying, God, I know that I'm a sinner. And in faith, I trust that you're going to provide for me. I'm trusting you. Now in the new Testament, same thing. Same story, but instead of bringing goats and sheep and rams, we bring Jesus. Same exact thing. The verses that you can kind of sum this whole teaching up with comes in Hebrews. There's a lot in Hebrews that kind of sums this up. I'll show you just a few of them. The first one is in Hebrews chapter 10, and it reads this way. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. So come back to Psalm 15, verse 1. Who may worship the Lord in your sanctuary? Who may enter your presence on your holy hill? What does Hebrews say? How do you get there? The blood of Jesus. Not by saying the right words, but the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. How do I get into the presence of God? How do I have peace with God? It's through the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, Hebrews chapter 9 links the sacrifice of Jesus with all the other animals in the sacrifices. Hebrews chapter 9 says it this way. With his own blood, referring to Jesus, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time. So he says, I'm going to do this, and we're done with this sacrificial system. Once for all time and secured our redemption, our payment, our forgiveness, our, we bring us into relationship forever into the presence of God. Hebrews nine twelve. So here's how I'd sum it up. The old Testament is you're bringing the animal. It's in faith. But what I'm doing is I'm bringing the animal, looking forward to God's provision, trusting that he is going to bring a Messiah. They were promised someone. I'm trusting God looking forward. Now they didn't know his name was Jesus. They, but they did know, they did know where he's going to be born, what tribe and what family lineage he was going to have. They knew a lot about him, but they didn't know his name was Jesus. They just looked forward. In the New Testament, same exact thing. It's in faith. But instead of bringing goats and calves, I bring Jesus. I have faith in Jesus. And now instead of looking forward like they did in the Old Testament, I'm looking backwards in time to the payment of Jesus. So that's a real quick, really fast, really fast theology, kind of Old Testament, New Testament, 101 uh, difference. So the presence of God, how do you know the presence of God? It's by faith, period. Not by working hard. It's faith in Jesus. The way I'd sum this up is works don't produce a relationship with God. Works are a result of a relationship with God. Very, very important distinction. I gain peace with God, not by behaving myself. Not by avoiding all the bad stuff. I gain peace and the presence of God by faith and a relationship with Jesus. Now, 
We get this one mixed up, and it's important. Faith and works must never be confused for one another, nor can they be separated. We can't pull these things apart. James chapter 2, if you want a verse to read maybe this week, it's not in your reading plan, but if you'd like one, it actually quotes some Old Testament people. It talks about a guy named Abraham and a girl named Rahab, both in the Old Testament. And it says, they gained righteousness by faith. Now, they gained righteousness by faith in the Old Testament, but then their faith produced works. Same as the New Testament. You gain righteousness by faith in Jesus, and your faith produces works. And we can't pull these two things apart. They, they, they link together. Now, to sum David up, Psalm 15, we're going to come right back into Psalm 15. I want to read Psalm 22. This is at the end of David's life. He is bringing his family together. He knows his life is over. He has this kind of poetic statement as he brings his kids around the, the, the room there. And he says this. Now, keep in mind when you read this. David probably committed the most notorious case of adultery we have ever seen in human history. We read about this one still today. We still talk about it. There's probably no one else in human history that's had an affair quite like David's where we still talk about it. Not only did he have an affair with someone who wasn't his wife, he then had her husband murdered to cover up the pregnancy that he caused. It's a mess. Now, in light of that, read the, and a lot of, he did a lot of other things, but he says this, for I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not turned from my God to follow evil. I have followed all his regulations. I have never, see that? Never. What's never? What's that mean? Never happened. I have never abandoned his decrees. You say, no, no, David, 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 <laughs> David, David, David. Are you just trying to smooth things over with your kids before, so they carry on this good image of you? I mean, David, really? You've never committed wrong? Come on, David. Well, if you continue reading, I have kept myself from sin. <laughs> David, 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 David. The Lord rewarded me for doing right. He has seen my innocence. Really? If you have an NIV or other translations, that he has seen me on my innocence reads this way, according to the cleanness in his sight. So what he is confessing at the end of his life is in faith, in faith, I've trusted God's provision. And because of my faith, God looks at me and through God's eyes, he sees me. This is, this is scandalous. He sees me as sinless, sinless. The power of this is amazing. David is called the only person in the Bible. The only human that's given this title is David. He's called a man after God's own heart. And I think he's called that because of this reality. He understood what it meant to come into the presence of God. He hungered for it like no one else. And he understood that to accomplish the presence of God, to have peace with God, it was about faith. And he understood that when God looked at him because of his faith, God saw him as innocent. Now, his kids didn't. Bathsheba certainly didn't. Uriah and some of the other people didn't. But David understood there's one person I stand before, and his name is God, the creator God of the universe. And in his sight, I'm clean. I'm at peace. I'm at rest. And David goes into all of eternity at rest with God. Now, with that said, come to chapter 15. Again, it's not my works that get me in the presence of God. It's a result of my peace with God. 
So I'd say it this way. You could kind of talk about this chapter this way. Peace with God brings rest in life. When, I'm in the pre- when I can say I'm in the presence of God, I'm at rest. I don't need to work really hard. I don't need to strive more. I don't need to dig deeper. I can just, I'm at rest. Now, as I think about that, and I think about my times of not being able to control my tongue, I find that I talk the most when I'm the most insecure. Any relate to this? Some of you, some of you are smiling. Some of you are like, no, Adam. But I find that the time when my mouth runs is when I walk into a room and it's kind of silent, there's that awkward silence. And I'm like, what do they think of me? <laughs> I don't know. So I just start talking. I'll find out sooner or later. And I just, it starts gone. The chatterbox turns on. And I could tell story story in my life where the times I found when I actually run my mouth the most is when I'm the most insecure. And so I love, I think what the heart of Psalm 15 is really getting at is when you're at rest with God, when you're in his presence, when you're at peace with him through faith, you're secure. You rest. And you don't have this need to run your mouth all over the place. With that said, look at some of the details, some of the application then of this. Chapter 5, verse 15, verse 2. It says this. Those who lead blameless lives... They're at peace with God. They're in his presence. They lead blameless lives and do what is right. Now, here's, here's a tough one for us. Speaking the truth from sincere hearts. Now, what I find interesting is I was looking at this this week, and I Googled some, trying to get some illustrations, and here's one of the things that popped up. <laughs> this was funny. Women in this room, on average, you're said to lie Three times a day. Whew, what do you think of that? Guys, you'd not give her a little, what do you lie to me today about, honey? So when you go to bed tonight, you can look at your wife and say, so honey, what were your three lies? Now, be careful though, men. Be careful. Because guess how many times you lie? I lie. <laughs> On average, six times a day. Twice as much. So maybe, wives, you should be asking your husband tonight when you go to bed. So, honey, tell me about your lies today. We lie. We are people who lie. I lie. We don't mean to. We don't like to at times, but we lie. Now, as I think about this word blameless, it kind of runs with another word, integrity. And if you think about integrity, I'll throw some definitions up. These are definitions you guys could probably give me. Um, you know these. Uh, it's nothing new or exciting. It's when your behavior matches your beliefs. So my behavior, the things I do, are lined up with the things inside of me. Or the other really famous way to say this, I don't know who first said this, but I know it's said a lot. It's integrity, being blameless, is when your public life matches your private life. So the way I am here in this stage, the way I am when I gather with you in small group or hang out with you throughout the week or the way I am around the table is linked up with what's happening inside of me. The things that I'm communicating here, the same things that are, and it's it's matched up perfectly. Now, the beauty of this is, I love about this. If you come down to verse five, the way the whole thing ends, such people will stand firm forever. You know, I've learned about a truthful life of integrity. What I've seen and I've learned, and I think this passage says it, so it will stand for him forever. A person's success, your kids' success in life, your teenagers' success in life, your success in life, what does it come from? You ever even thought about that question? As we think about that answer, I mean, real success in life. A lot of us begin to think about schooling. 
about opportunities. Let's get my kids in sports or get them into music and get them into this and experience, take them there, or take them on this trip or let them. We think of all these opportunities. We think of schooling and smarts and intelligence. We think of let's teach them. Let's teach them how to work hard. Let's teach them how to get engaged with their talents and let's all this stuff. What I've discovered in my short life, I think you guys have seen this probably in your lives. Success ultimately is determined by a person's character. Now, that's not to say talent isn't important. It's not to say if you just have this great character and you're a really nice guy, you're going to be successful. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying you can have all that other stuff and not have character and ultimately your life will not be a success. Even in the world's definition of success. Ultimately having character and having integrity, it links up to meeting life's demands, meeting the reality of life. And a person who's truthful embraces reality as a friend. Those of us who aren't really into being blameless, we don't always embrace reality as a friend. We would pick the rug up and let's just set that down. Or let's avoid this. Let's not talk about that. But reality is my friend. It's like an airplane. You know, we're all following the news right now of that airliner over there in the, over there in the, in the southeast and trying to figure out what happened. And, but when you talk about the character of the metal of an airplane, what are you referring to? You ever heard that say, why would you talk about airplane's character? Well, how does an airplane have character? Same way we have character. It meets the demands of reality. So in other words, they laid, built this airplane and engineered it so when it takes off, the metal can withstand all the torque. It can withstand the temperature changes of cold and hot. It meets the demands of reality. So when I have character, I'm able to meet the demands of reality. My life, my private life, my personal life, it all links up. Now, being truthful, being truthful, I think, isn't even so much about what I say. Being truthful is really in terms of our willingness to be honest when it hurts. And sometimes truthfulness is, again, more about what I said, but what I didn't say. Have you ever been asked a question by your spouse or maybe a friend, or, and you give them an answer, but you know you didn't give them all the answer? You held a little stuff back. I gave them. I didn't lie. But I didn't give them the whole truth because I knew it. So, again, it's more about the heart's intention. So again, am I honest when it hurts? Do I really want to take on? But a lot of us, I think, we lack integrity. We don't tell the truth because what we're really thinking in our mind is, I'm going to get some benefit out of this. So I'm going to lie in my resume so I get the job. I'm going to fudge in my expense report because I get a little more money. I'm going to um, overbill and cut corners on the job because, hey, after all, it's behind the wall. They won't know what I did. They don't know how much really time I put in. And, and hey, I'm going, to, I'm going to pad the bank account. I'm going to cheat so I get a better grade. Or I'm going to tell myself, I can quit anytime. No, you can't. You're not embracing reality. You know what an alcoholic says? I can quit. I'm in control. No, they haven't embraced reality. A person who's truthful, reality, here's the other thing I'd say. Reality is their friend, but the other thing is a person who's characterized as being truthful, speaking truth, having integrity, will also look at reality and understand I don't have a grasp on it because I really don't know what I don't know. So I don't walk around arrogant like, I got this all figured out. So what I think, bringing this back to peace with God, being in the presence of God, when I lie, I think that it will bring me some security. Some level, it'll give me some security. Well, guess what? In Jesus, you have all the security you need, period. And actually, 
Talk to someone who's lived a life of lies. Ask them how secure they are. You're going you're to meet one of the most insecure people in the world when you really talk to someone who's been a lifetime lying. Other times we'll lie to get ahead thinking, well, it'll get me more. <laughs> it'll get me more. Well, when I'm at peace with God, you know why I don't lie? I don't need more. I have enough. His name's Jesus. I'm in his presence. I am at rest and I am at peace. I don't need to lie to get more. And actually, actually lying brings you less. You get caught lying on a job. What ends up happening? If you fudged contracts and fudged your resume, you end up losing your job. So lying actually brings you less. And here's another one. A lot of times we lie because, well, they, they'll like us. They'll like me. I mean, how many of you have told the fish story, right? You caught the fish. He was really eight inches. You got home and told the wife and the kids, and he was 12 inches. Until you told the friends it was 24 inches. And now today, 20 years later, that thing is full three feet long. And he fought you hard. He almost pulled you in. And I mean, it was like this thing is, again, we, why do we do that? Just fudge a little bit. Let's exaggerate just a little. Well, they're going to laugh. And if they laugh, they like me more. And if they like me more, again, we're doing it to get ahead. But again, Jesus doesn't just love you. He likes you. When you're at rest and you're at peace with Jesus, (laughs) what do I need to worry about all this other? And again, if you're worried about people liking you, so you're going to tell lies to make them like you, your relationship ends up being built on lies. And a relationship built on lies, you guys, how far is it going to make it? It'll be over before long. So again, tell the truth. If I'm at rest with God, I'm going to be a person who's truthful. I'm going to speak the truth. I'm going to talk the truth. Now, look at verse 3. Those who refuse to slander others or harm their neighbors or speak evil with their friends. We have this concept that that translators use the word slander. Others use the word gossip. They they, at times can kind of mean the same thing. The thing that's interesting, when you go to the Hebrew, what does the word slander mean? Again, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I just pull pull volume off or type things online. Uh, And Hebrew, the word could simply be to spy or explore. You go on to dictionary.com or Webster's, you're going to find that definition at the bottom. Slander is to hurt a person's reputation with your words. And I love the link of the two. (laughs) Isn't that what slander really is? Aren't you digging and fishing and looking and I'm going to now use this to hurt you? I'm slandering. Now, the question that will often get posed, maybe you've been asked this. We just got done talking about being truthful. You say, well, what if it's true? What if it's true? What if that information I have that I went fishing for and I got, or that we're sitting in a group and and I know something about them and, and I want to talk about it. What if it's true? Well, first thing I'd say is this. I challenge all of us in our definition of what's true. All of us know far less than what we think we know. Our culture today thinks we are the expert on everything. Just peruse around Facebook and Twitter and blogs and internet. Go home and turn on Fox News or CNN. We have opinions on everything and we think we're the expert. We're shredding our U.S. president on a regular basis, not just conservative Christians, but even liberals. We're, we're constantly shredding our leaders. And I always want to stop and caution a person, even myself, when I hear myself going and say, were you in the Oval Office when that discussion was had that led to that decision? No. 
Did you talk to anyone who was in the Oval Office? So that decision was that, did you talk with President Obama himself? And do you really know what's inside of him? And, but you're willing to just blow him apart because of what some news reporter told you is true. Be really careful what we embrace as truth. Even, even your spouse. You don't know why he said that or why she did that. You know they did it. Why did they do it? What were they thinking? What were they feeling? What was their intention? What was on their heart? Can we run around at times and why did your friend say that? Or why did your friend do that? Or why did they, I mean, we think we know truth far more than what we really know. So I challenge us, even you say, what's true? Well, be careful with what we understand to be truth. The other thing I've learned is I say, why do I slander when I do it? Well, you know why I think I do it? This is kind of a dark reality, but don't we all love hearing a little dirt? Doesn't that make you feel good? You say, feel good. Yeah. I mean, wow, sweetie. Did you see that husband? He's a moron. I mean, that guy, and we always pick out the stuff that we do really well. That guy doesn't even clean up after dinner. That's all I do at home. I mean, I clean up after dinner. I do the dishes. That guy doesn't do that. Look how cool I am. It's really what I'm doing. We love dirt. Nine times out of 10, I find when I'm slandering someone, it's because I'm trying to make myself, again, when we come back to being in the presence of God, when I'm at peace with God, I don't need to go putting everyone else down and talking about everyone else to make myself look better. I can just go, glad I'm not his judge. Glad he didn't stand accountable to me. So again, I think that's another reason I think um, when I'm at peace with God, I can live at peace with others because they don't answer to me. I'm glad they don't. I'd be a terrible judge. And it's not my job to expose all the corrupt, terrible, evil things in the world that people do. It's not my job. Biggest thing I'd say with gossip, I just want to mention gossip in a minute. Biggest thing I'd say with gossip is do not triangulate. Matthew 18 speaks so clear. When you see someone do something that's wrong or you suspect somebody doing something that's wrong, I challenge us not to run to our friends or even, well, well, they saw, they, and and go talking about it. If you think it's wrong, go to them. Say, I'm concerned for you. I'm really concerned for you. See, what happens with slander and gossip even if it's true, if it is true, it should be married with grace. So when I'm bringing that truth to you, it's to help you. But gossip and slander are seldom used to help, if ever. When I have truth about you, my heart should be for you. So what I'm going to do with that truth is help you. And slandering you or gossiping about you is not helping you. So again, that's that one. Now, look at verse 4. And each of these verses have something about the tongue. It's so amazing. Verse four, those who despise persistent sinners. We're not going to talk about that one too much because it doesn't really tie quite as hard to the tongue as what some of these others do. And honor the faithful followers of the Lord. Again, honoring could because as you honor, you speak. You, you not only, again, so that's some of it there. But now this next one. And keep their promises even when it hurts. I think that's the heart of this whole passage. When I'm in the presence of God, I'm at peace with him. I can stay true to my word, even when it hurts. Now, a lot of people today view this problem of not honoring words as a young person problem. If you talk to Pastor Chris, who works with teenagers, if you talk with Grant, who works with teenagers, 
If you talk with high school teachers or coaches who work with teenagers and you ask them, describe the weaknesses, the downsides, the, the, the evil parts of today's younger generation. Often in the top three negative things that they will say when you push them is this issue. They don't stick to their word. They don't honor their word. They back out of commitments all the time. They sign up for something and don't show up. We can't get them to sign up for stuff because they don't want to commit to anything. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's when something more convenient comes along, they, they'll go with the more. And it's, you hear young people today railed on for this one. Now, here's a challenge to all of us. Where'd they learn it? Learned it from me. They learned it from you. You say, no, no, no. Yes. Little things like last night, yesterday, I'm driving home with one of my kids and he says to me, Hey daddy, can we watch a movie tonight? Oh, maybe. Yeah, we could possibly watch a movie. Well, could we watch? He names the movie. Well, do we have that movie? Yeah, I, we have that movie. And he acted all kind of surprised that I didn't know that. I'm like, well, when did you get that movie? Well, for Christmas. Oh yeah, I do remember that. Well, did you and mommy watch it yet? So here's what I said to him. After he got the movie, can we watch this movie? Well, mommy and daddy need to watch that first to see if it's okay for you to watch. Because it's an older movie, and I'm like, well, I haven't seen it. I'd like to really take it in before I give it to my kids to watch. So he brings this up. Well, guess what? That was Christmas time when he got the movie. What is that? Two and a half months ago? My wife and I haven't watched the movie yet. Matter of fact, I'd forgotten. I even promised him that I would watch the movie. Now, why didn't I watch the movie yet? Yes, I forgot, but you know what? It hurts. It's not a big hurt. But when I put those kids to bed, I do not want to be watching a juvenile film. I want to be sitting down with my wife and connecting with her or, or doing something, playing a game on my phone or something other than watching a movie that I'm like, you kidding me? But what did I communicate to my kids? If I don't stop, I did. I said, boy, buddy, I said, please forgive me for that. I was wrong of daddy to make that commitment to you and not follow through. A lot of us don't even think about it. I mean, you go on to it. I mean, maybe you promise your kids a vacation. The time comes around for the vacation. You realize, well, that was crazy. We can't afford a vacation. Maybe you need to go on a vacation because you promised your kids a vacation. Maybe you just need to camp out in your backyard, take off work for a week. It's a vacation. You know, maybe some of you, you promised the wife or the husband or the kids, I'm going to be home at five o'clock. I'm, I'm bad at this. And I try and blame it on, well, I only live two minutes from the office. So I'm, I try and blame, well, it's just hard for me because I think that I can walk out at five knowing that I'll be right home at five. Well, it doesn't work that way. I get home late a lot. Is that honoring my word? Some of you say, well, the boss came in at 4.30 and he had this really big thing and, and I told him you'd be home at five. Honor your word. Or the times I've coached football and other sports throughout my life, Always amazed at the number of parents that allowed their kids to quit after two weeks of practice. What have you taught the child? Well, they didn't, they weren't good at it. Actually, it makes my life easier anyway, because I don't need to take them to practice two nights a week. And then I can this and I can, well, guess what? Push through the practice. And then maybe next time you make a commitment to play a sport, you'll think twice before doing it. We go on with things, but kids look in, this isn't even to say of the really big stuff like marriage. Young people today are watching marriages fall apart all around them. 
Young people, they don't know what security is in a marriage. My own kids who look in at a good marriage at times will talk to me about, you know, would you and mom and dad, would you and dad, would you and mommy, not daddy, where where, there's not a daddy in the picture with me. Would you, would you and mommy ever get a divorce? They ask me that question. Why are they asking that question? Because the world around them, they're not watching marriages stay together. And they're watching mar- husbands and wives that say, I do for till death do us part, pull apart. Kids are looking in and seeing this. And it's just, we're not honoring our word when it hurts. The funny thing is, that's what I chuckle at. We hate when this happens to us. Have you ever had an appointment? You scheduled something maybe a couple weeks out. You set the thing up, maybe lunchtime or maybe an evening, have them over to your home. And you get down to that, you know, that day and you get a phone call. Uh, sorry, I can't make it. Uh, really? Doesn't it bother you? As we hate when it's done us, but we're so quick to do it to others. Now, let's sew this whole thing up with verse five. I've already mentioned it. I want to mention again, such people, the very end of verse five. There's, again, more stuff in verse 5 on the tongue. We don't have time to get into it. They don't testify against the innocent. So, again, it comes back, just powerful stuff there. But verse 5, the end of it. Such people will stand firm forever. Just say to the person next to you, stand firm. Let's go ahead and tell them. Just tell them, stand firm. Some of you aren't telling them. Come on. I see you. Wake that person up next to you. I see some of you need to nudge those nappers. Just say, stand firm. Now, we want this. We want a life that's secure. Not a one of you in this room wants an insecure, unstable life. You want to be placed on the rock of security and stand there. The cool thing is, when you come into the presence of God, you have peace with him. And the promise is a secure, standing firm life. I want to come back to the story I started with. Tanya and I went out on... um, a date this week because we hit this cool milestone, 15 years we've been married. I know I've had some other people come up and talk to me about how long they've been married. I know we're just getting started. There you go. Thank you. And honestly, we're just getting started. I mean, I talked to some of you who've been married for, there's some of you in this church who've been married 40 plus years, 50 years. And I'm like, wow. I mean, that's, that's, I honor and respect that deeply. So we got on this date. We're sitting at Olive Garden. It's one of our favorite restaurants um, to, to go together. And we're sitting there, and, and I had already put this message together and already thought about this. So I wanted to just get her opinion. I said, sweetie, what were some of your favorite years? We had a lot of fun discussion. Favorite years, favorite memories. Just kind of kick some of that stuff around. Then I asked her this kind of tied in more to this message. I said, um, what do you think would have been different if I didn't honor my word to that contract? What results came of that? Now, I don't really know the answer. I mean, because you're playing hypothetical. Now, in other words, we're asking, if we didn't do that, what would have happened in our marriage? I don't know the answer. So, it's, again, it's, I'm guessing, but here's some of the stuff I, I think kind of came of it. The first thing was, um, we were 500 miles apart. Now, let me tell you, 500-mile-apart engagement is a good thing for an individual who really, really wants to be married, if you know what I'm saying. You can read between the lines on that. <laughs> so we were able to come. Now, I wasn't a virgin coming into our relationship, but I was vowed to stay pure with this woman named Tanya Brahm. So we were able to do that. And I'll tell you what, it was by the skin of our teeth because there were times when we were home together and break. And man, it was hard. 
But we're able to stay pure. So what would have happened if we had not? So what would have, what have we walked in with guilt? And what would have that guilt done? To, I don't know. I don't know. But I know that we didn't have to deal with that. I know another thing. My wife got to move in with my parents. You say, well, how's that a standing firm benefit? <laughs> what I've learned in my short years of marriage and, and marriage counseling is one of the number one issues that bring couples to divorce is often rooted back to what I would call family of origin struggles. Where you have two people who, are, who come from two completely different backgrounds, two completely different ways of relating to mom and dad and, and all this stuff. And you come in together and you're doing things. You're dancing together. You don't even realize there's all this backstory. So what my wife got to do, because she said, we got to figure out how to save money, right? We've got we to pay for this wedding. So she gave up her apartment and moved in because I wasn't living there. So she moved in with my parents. And she's suddenly starting to scratch her head and going, ha, yes, he makes sense now. And so again, now we're still trying to determine if that's a benefit or not, but... But, in all, but it, was, it was a cool thing, though, as we look back on it. It gave my wife a lot of things to learn, and it probably helped us get into some areas addressing some things earlier than what we would have otherwise. And here's probably the biggest one. Tanya and I did not, for the first seven months of our marriage, have to worry about paying a single bill aside from our health insurance, which was $22 a month. I still remember that. I was like, $22? What do I need this for? I wish I was only paying $20 a month now for health insurance and our car insurance. That's all we had because of this contract. They gave me a place to stay on the property. That wasn't a real nice place. I'll, I'll give you that, but it was a house. I didn't have to worry about rent or mortgage. I didn't have to worry about a car payment because we had that all taken care of. I didn't have to worry about food because we could go eat another cafeteria, you know, cafeteria is cafeteria food. It is what it is, but Hey, it was free, right? Now, as I look back on that, I look at the life I have now worrying about things breaking down, dishwashers and dryers and heating systems and paying my mortgage and taxes. And I look at just get the list running. We don't have any of that to start on. Another thing I've learned that leads to divorce is money problems. We didn't have that at all. We didn't even talk about money because, well, what do we need to worry about money for? We're, everything was given to us, basically. I look at the, the foundation that that laid for that early time was, Wow. Now, what would have it been had we cut that contract and I would have had to jump right in to paying rent and all that other stuff? I don't know. But the thing I'd end with for all of us, isn't there something amazing about a clean conscience? About being able to stand firm saying, I did it. With God's help, I did it. And there's something rewarding about pushing through something really hard when others were looking in and saying, Adam, you sure don't want to leave? You have the right to leave. They violated their way. When you push through, it strengthens muscles in you that you don't even know you have at times. It gives you a hope for life. that You're like, wow, because now the next tough thing you face, it just builds on that. And you're able to say, yeah, you know what? I did this once. I can do it again. I think that's the greatest gift that we had walking into our marriage. It's just the ability to say, I can do it. And that's what we all want. So again, as I go to prayer, where are you at in your relationship with God? Are you in a relationship with him through faith alone in Jesus, period? If you're depending on your good works to merit that relationship, you're going to be 
My heart hurts for you. Find freedom by coming to Jesus and saying, it's faith in Jesus. I trust that you've provided for me to bring me to the presence of God. And then when you're there, you stand firm, you're at rest. You're just able to go, I have security. And allow the fruit of your tongue to follow suit. God, thank you so much for Jesus who brings us that security, who brings us that ability to breathe and just say, thank you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the story of human history where you've worked and continued to work and continue to bring life and hope in dark places. Guys, I think about all of us in this room, I, my heart yearns that every one of us would be able to walk out of here this morning saying, you know what? I've settled the biggest question that I could possibly ever ask myself, and that is, who is God? Who is Jesus? And why am I in a relationship with him? How? God, being at peace with you is life. God, may we all settle that basic question of we're at peace with you. We're in your presence through faith alone in Jesus, period. God, so I press pray right now and give people time to just process and ask the hard question. Is that why I'm in a relationship with God? Is that how? Or am I depending on something outside of that? And God, for those of us that are there that can confidently say, I have peace with God. I'm in his presence. God, the scriptures teach it today, unlike the Old Testament, his presence and we believe in Jesus enters us. He lives with us. God, what a cool gift. God, for those of us in this room that know that your presence is there with us, God, may we be people who just consistently come back to that peace that we have with you through Jesus. As we find rest there and security, may our tongues produce fruit that gives life. May we be people that are truthful with integrity and character. May we be people that don't gossip and slander. May we be people that, that honor our word and make promises and then stick to them, even when it hurts. God, thank you so much for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.